Two and a Half Admins, episode 50. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you've got a blog post to promote as usual, Alan. Let's talk OpenZFS snapshots. Yeah, uh, so it's a discussion of how to use OpenZFS snapshots to maximum effect. Uh, it's really interesting. Check it out. And uh, we'll be building on that topic uh, in future posts. Right, well, link to that in the show notes as usual. Pretty big WireGuard news then. WireGuard NT. This is a kernel-level implementation for Windows. Yeah, this was a pretty big surprise. I didn't really have a hint that this was going on. Just all of a sudden, hey, there's a Windows-native port of the actual Linux WireGuard code. Up until now, the way WireGuard has worked on Windows is you've had a user space implementation, WireGuard Go, and you've had a user space network adapter shim, basically, called Winton. Now, Winton was already an enormous improvement over what the OpenVPN project had been doing for a couple of decades now with the Tap Windows virtual network adapter. After Dunnenfeld created Winton because he didn't like Tap Windows, even the OpenVPN project implemented support for Winton over Tap Windows and doubled their throughput, basically, when they did. So this was a huge improvement, but it didn't get rid of all the context switches from kernel mode to user mode and back again, which has significant impact on latency and power consumption and a whole lot of things that you really want to remain low. So in order to overcome this, uh, Donenfeld and another contributor, Simon, I forget his last name, they did a full port of the actual kernel mode Linux WireGuard code to Windows. They got that running on Windows, and then once they had it running, they went through and basically made it less Linuxy and more Windowsy, so that it looked proper in terms of you know NDIS APIs and all the other various NTisms. So what we're left with is a proper, no kidding, Windows kernel mode device driver that implements WireGuard done. It was interesting, you know, Donafeld even mentioned in the emails, like, you might have noticed I haven't said much lately, because I've been heads down working on this for a couple of months straight, basically. But it was uh, interesting to see. And then the other thing that uh, came up in the email thread is that this had a kind of unexpected performance improvements for Wi-Fi, or, or you know, WireGuard over Wi-Fi, with people reporting as much as, you know, on my Wi-Fi, I normally get 600 megabits on, WireGuard only got 250, and now gets like 500 and no real explanation for why that is, although we suspect it's some, likely something to do with by being fully in kernel and not having those contexts, which is causing pauses in the packet delivery, you can aggregate more packets together and get them out on the network quickly and use less airtime and get leave more Wi-Fi for everybody else while using the VPN. Right. What we're talking about here is 802.11 packet aggregation so that you're sending a batch of packets all out at once with reduced overhead. And if you're doing user mode to kernel mode context switching, then those individual packets may not come in quickly enough that the 802.11 device driver can and will actually aggregate all of them, you know, into one burst to, to transmit. Whereas if you've got everything in kernel, well, then you no longer have this, this kind of bottleneck that things might get separated. So everything arrives as a batch to the WireGuard tunnel, it arrives as a batch to your 802.11 device driver, and then it goes out batched as well. So you've got less overhead, you've got higher throughput, and also, hopefully, you've got less airtime consumption. So everybody's Wi-Fi gets better, not just your own. Now, I wasn't able to confirm the the most dramatic results that some of the early testers reported. Uh, some of them, you know, were reporting throughput going up by as much as 
two or three hundred percent from the old WireGuard Go and WinTun to the new WireGuard NT over Wi-Fi. I couldn't confirm that, but when I set up something to replicate on my own network using uh, Plume Wi-Fi 6 SuperPods for the back end as the hands down the fastest APs I've got and a uh, an HP Elite Book that uses Intel AX201 Wi-Fi 6, when I set that up, I got 300 megabits raw. I got uh, roughly 220 megabits with the old WireGuard code. But when I switched over to the new WireGuard NT, that 220 something went up to about 270. So it is a noticeable improvement, even when it's not incredibly dramatic. Now, with all that said, again, the Wi-Fi improvements, those were a, a happy, unexpected bonus. That wasn't what Donenfeld was going for. What he was going for really was, you know, higher top end on machines with 10 gigabit wired interfaces. And when he tested that between C3.small, uh, formerly packet.net, now Equinix Metal, I assume because somebody had an aneurysm, machines, the overall throughput went from 2 gigabits flat to 7.5. And the thing that really lets you know just how much of a big deal it is to avoid all this context switching from kernel mode to user space is that this is not optimized code, right? So the WireGuard Go and Winton stack, it's it's not brand new by any means. You know, it's been optimized and tweaked and tuned. The new code is basically just like, okay, we're pretty sure this is correct and it all works right. And let's see how it does. And the end result is triple the high end throughput. Yeah. So there's probably still some more games to be eked out as this gets polished up and gets out of the experimental stage. That is almost a direct quote of Don and Phil himself about that, including saying eeks. Oh. <laughs> so do you think this might mean more adoption of WireGuard in the enterprise space then? I think ultimately we're going to see a lot more WireGuard adoption in the enterprise space regardless, because it's just pretty much the best thing out there right now. And it just takes enterprises a while to catch up because, you know, they've, they've got a lot of uh, a lot of inertia to, to push through. I think the biggest thing is that um, even though it wasn't what Donenfeld was going for, I think the fact that there's measurable improvement in how well it works over Wi-Fi is going to be a huge thing that will push even more consumers to it, basically. And as consumer awareness of any protocol shoots up, that also inevitably has an effect on the enterprise. I mean, you look at how Windows ended up dominating the business world. It's not because they set out to dominate the business world, really. It's because they dominated the home. And once they dominated the home... Everybody demanded the windows that they were used to at home at work as well. And here we are. Because there are office buildings that basically don't have any Ethernet at all. It seems like a weird decision to make, but I've definitely heard of this. They have access points everywhere, wireless access points, but no Ethernet. We do live in a wireless world now. Well, if you think about it, it's hard to buy a laptop that has a real Ethernet port anymore. Well, yeah, exactly. Like my X270 is about the last thing that's actually just thick enough to still have a, a real Ethernet port. There's a couple to have these janky fold-out things. But to be fair, we're talking enterprise, which means everybody's going to have a docking station. So the, the wired Ethernet port is not an issue, really. Now, the other thing that we should mention is that um, although WireGuard NT is already built in and available directly in the newest 
just generally available WireGuard for Windows downloads. It is hidden behind a registry knob because it is still technically alpha code. I say technically, well, you know what technically means. It means truly. <laughs> it's alpha code. <laughs> I've tested it some and I didn't have any problems on it. Uh, you know, I've seen people pushing terabytes across, you know, tunnels on WireGuard NT. I don't expect any big problems, but again, it's experimental. So you should keep that in mind. Well, and importantly, because it's an in-kernel driver, it means if it crashes, it takes out the operating system. Whereas WireGuard Go, if it crashed, it took out your VPN and you could just restart WireGuard. Yeah, it's very correct. Uh, if if you are one of the lucky testers to find a uh, WireGuard NT bug that needs fixing, you'll know that when your machine blue screens. With that said, I have not seen any blue screens with it. I don't think that's just like, oh, you're going to install it and all immediately your machine's going to be super crashy. But it's experimental. That's why you have to turn on these crazy registry flags, you know, to enable it and make it work. So keep that in mind. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CheckMK. Go to checkmk.com slash 25admins. CheckMK is the best way to monitor your complex and hybrid IT infrastructure, bridging the gap between IT ops and DevOps teams. With CheckMK, you can go from zero to monitoring in less than 10 minutes and quickly gain a complete view of your IT infrastructure, no matter how complex. CheckMK can support thousands of devices across different locations, and it's easy to set them up. From physical infrastructure to hybrid environments, CheckMK can cope with the demanding needs of high-performing organizations. With around 2,000 plugins available, CheckMK supports industry-standard monitoring requirements out of the box. As well as operating systems, you can also monitor Cisco, HP, AWS, SAP, Docker, Azure, and Kubernetes. So go to checkmk.com slash 25admins and try out the open source or enterprise edition. That's checkmk.com slash 25admins. So just a quick update from a couple of episodes ago. Jim, you were talking about the framework laptop and you'd had some issues with software. Well, they were quickly resolved after we recorded. Yeah, absolutely. It turns out that the real issue was that the laptop, even the DIY version, is supposed to ship with a USB thumb drive which has, I believe, a Windows 10 installer with all the necessary drivers slipstreamed into it, or possibly just the driver bundle. But uh, once I reached out to the framework folks and they had a chance to get back to me, they gave me a link to the driver bundle, a single 800 meg file that just basically does it all. You double click it and in a console window, you see it install all the drivers one by one and then close itself and then you're just good to go. No remaining issues. Nice. And Ubuntu 2104 worked flawlessly as well, right? Correct. Uh, there were the closest thing to perfect you're really going to get on a laptop running Linux is there's only three or four things listed in LSHW that show up as unclaimed and it's random stuff and you don't know what it is or what it should do, but everything actually works. And that was the case here. Actually, Framework was the uh, that's the first laptop I think I've ever looked at that had a working fingerprint reader under Linux. I initially assumed that the fingerprint reader was one of the unclaimed devices because it almost always is. There are only, I think, I believe it's three total models of hardware fingerprint reader for which drivers exist for Linux, but apparently they used one of them. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support if you want to learn a bit more about that. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions or feedback, show at 2.5admins.com. 
So G writes to us, I have a dilemma. I recently bought an Odroid HC4 because I need to update the system where my wife stores a gazillion pictures of our children. And that is a Pi 2 with Debian, a commercial USB 3 Seagate hard drive. I thought it may be helpful since it has two base slots in order to have data mirrored in two disks in case of any disk failure. However, reading more about RAID and mirrored data, it ended up that two identical disks, same period, stock, etc., are likely to fail in the same time frame. Hence, long story short, I could buy two 8TB Ironwolves and mirror them, or two 6TB Ironwolves spending less, but with 12TB of space available rather than just 8TB. So the question is, two 8TB drives and mirror them, or buy two 6TB drives and stripe them? You're definitely still going to want a mirror. So this was kind of an, uh, a difficult question to parse from the way it was phrased, but I'm pretty sure what G is really asking is, is it worth bothering mirroring these drives or should I just, you know, say the heck with the mirroring and use every last byte that I can on every last drive that I can? And the answer is moo, because the real question is not that. The real question is, are you backing this up? Because mirroring is not a backup. <laughs> yeah, no, no RAID is backup. Even RAID Z3 is not a backup. No RAID is a backup. So if you are backing up the system regularly and reliably and you trust it and you're prepared to restore from it, no, you don't need to mirror that. Um, mirroring is just a way to get a little bit of extra performance and you know some some extra uptime, right? Like maybe you don't have to do a full restore from your backup because maybe one disk kept you going when a second disk failed, but you don't consider that a backup. So the real question is, if you don't have that backup, then yeah, you should buy two disks, but you don't mirror them and you don't just save stuff willy-nilly on both of them. One of them's the backup. I wouldn't be too worried about two identical disks from the same period and the same stock are likely to fail at the same time. Like they may have the same defect if there is a defect or something, but because they're mechanical, the chances of both failing at really exactly the same time are, are pretty remote. Yeah, it's an increased likelihood that two drives from the same vendor of the same model in the same batch will die very close to one another. Yes, that is more likely. More likely is not the same thing as probable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when I see multiple drive failures in a single array, I mean, that happens, I don't know, Alan, maybe one out of 20 failures happens that way. Yeah, maybe. You're more likely to have a problem with the both, all the drives died because of uh, a shock hazard to them or because of something wrong with the power and it killed them both. Like there are many other things that are likely to take out the drives at the same time, whether they were identical models or not, than for just physically to happen that both of them had or out at the same time or whatever. You know, with SSDs, if you're talking about wear leveling and so on, it's more likely if they're mirrored that they're going to run out of capacity at the same time, but that's not what we're talking about here. So I would probably still go with the mirroring. Only if you already have a backup. Yes, exactly. Like you want to have two backups probably. So your solution might be to have to buy, you know, two hard drives, one for the primary, one somewhere else as the backup, and then you still want a backup to somewhere else, whether that's Google Photos or, you know, your third backup doesn't have to be the same thing, but, you know, you don't want these pictures to go away. Hey, hang on. Let's let's be real here. Yes, two backups, different media. All of that is absolutely best practice for mission critical data and a mission of any size. But let's be real here. Most people, most, not all, 
they're not going to be willing to have three separate storage systems, you know, to keep pictures and stuff on. But everybody really, really, really can and should have one backup, period. Don't even think about RAID until you got backup. That was what I was saying, is have one backup and also put a copy in Google Photos or something. Even if it's going to degrade the quality of the photos, it's better to have the photo than not. Or use Amazon Photos and still get the uh, you know original storage quality. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets. Training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Okay, so Danny asks quite a strange one. Why is browsing and moving files via a Samba share so bad when accessing them from Linux? I've tried a couple of flavors of Ubuntu and it crawls. When I reboot into Windows, it's fine. So the server is Samba on Linux? I don't think it much matters. I mean, what it really boils down to is uh, the SMB protocol has undergone a lot of changes over the years. And uh, Microsoft has specifically made a lot of changes and it can be really dinky and weird trying to get everything to match up across operating systems at all, much less with decent performance. This probably isn't really what you want to hear, but I've just about given up on Samba for actually hosting and moving files at home because these days Windows has SSH built right in. So I'm more likely to just SCP things anyway. If it's a Samba client on Linux, what is the caching like? For like directory listings, does it have any or does it have to go to the Samba server every time and be like, give me all 10,000 files that are in this directory? No, it it, it does. It does. Th- this is really coming down to issues with uh, compatibility problems with, you know, Windows wants to do SMB3 and by default, you know, Samba is doing like SMB2 and sometimes that will work. If you hold your mouth right, sometimes it won't work and you've got to go and reconfigure the Ubuntu side to do SMB3, not SMB2 to match what the Windows side wants. And like every couple of years, what you have to do to the configs changes again. Thanks, Microsoft. Well, that's kind of why I was wondering if the the server in question was Windows, then that makes more sense here. Uh, because yeah, when you're using Windows as the client, you're using SMB3 instead of 2. But if it's a Samba server... And then a Linux client versus a Windows client, I wouldn't expect to see as much difference. Typically, no. But I, I, I mean, given that we're talking about somebody who's saying when I reboot into Windows, it's fine. I don't think that both ends are ever Linux. Good point. Admittedly, on the machine I'm on right here, uh, it only has a 512 gig NVMe for its own storage. And then it's Samba shares to the FreeBSD ZFS server for everything else. So I use the network all the time and I don't really notice much slowness. I'm browsing large directories of files and copying multi-gigabyte recordings of podcasts, uh, video podcasts and so on across and doesn't seem to ever cause any problems. I don't know how helpful this is, but I will also mention that Samba configs can eventually get screwed up in really interesting ways. And if you're just like adding and removing the package, it doesn't always fix it. 
I actually eventually got to the point that I don't know why Samba serving stopped working from my main workstation, which is also where I host all my media content. But uh, then I discovered that Cody was perfectly happy connecting to it with SSHFS, so I just stopped caring about the Samba. <laughs> stopped fighting it. <laughs> That's probably not going to be the answer that you know our listener is looking for, but <laughs> it's kind of funny. Yeah, because uh, the other one is, you know, Windows can use NFS now, so you could also do that. Although that's a whole different bucket of pain. <laughs> Yay, sync rights. Always. It's fun. Only the Linux client or VMware client does sync rights always. NFS doesn't have to be always sync. It doesn't have to be, but it almost always is by default. And um, I'm not super skilled up on this, but I've heard an awful lot of people that I respect say, yeah, you don't want to turn that off, the sync right on NFS. Right, well, because the caching ends up being on the client, and then, yeah, if you get disconnected, then that right never happened. Fun. Magnus says, I'm about to redo my home network. Right now, I have a media server with Ubuntu functioning as a storage device, running containers, virtual machines, and a Steam gaming server. There are a lot of things happening on this server. It's a suboptimal setup. The question is for my new setup. I'm planning to use a dedicated NAS with either TrueNAS or ZigmaNAS, and I'm wondering, is it better to run it on bare metal or run it as a virtual machine? I feel like I trust bare metal more. It seems more real, but I definitely see the advantages with a virtual machine. What is recommended? I'm looking at buying a Supermicro 2U twin node, one node as the NAS and virtual machines and storage, and the other to run as the gaming server. Run it on bare metal. There's very little advantage to be gained from running your storage stack inside a virtual machine. And there's a lot of potential nasty pitfalls to navigate in terms of making sure you, you know, actually pass through the hardware properly and you don't introduce performance issues or reliability issues or data integrity issues. Now, if you're talking a pure storage stack, I mean, like the ZFS properties and permissions and hierarchy and structure, you don't need to worry about any of that. It will just work. Any machine that you import that pool on, it will be your pool laid out the same way with the same record sizes, same A shift, you know, same compression, same everything else. It's all built in. So basically, the only thing that you might potentially save yourself by virtualizing ZigmaNAS or TrueNAS would be the ZigmaNAS or TrueNAS specific internal setups. Like, you know, what... SMB file shares you have or something. Now, those are trivially simple to back up on either platform. In a home use case, it's frequently, it's not even worth backing up because it's basically just like, you know, share the thing and you're done. And it's not going to be worthwhile trying to virtualize that only for the potential benefit of being able to back up this entire gigantic image rather than just having to back up, you know, the XML that defines the settings specific to TrueNAS or ZigmaNAS, not ZFS. Right, because you're going to want to use ZFS to do the backups anyway because the incrementals will be smaller and smarter. Virtualization also has this nasty habit of sometimes deciding to try to lie about the disk flush commands to make things faster. And that's one of the things ZFS depends on for its transaction groups is knowing what I've asked the hard drive to tell me, all right, that's safe on the disk and is going to survive a power failure, right? Okay, and then I'll do the next one. And... If the hypervisor lies about that, then ZFS can't trust anything and it gets terrible. So yeah, definitely want to do it on the real hardware. If in some use case not like what the one you're describing, you really, for some reason, have to virtualize your NAS, you want to do hardware pass-through of the disk controller 
and have the whole disk controller controlled by the VM running the NAS rather than passing to individual disks. Because again, that's the only way to make sure that when you tell the controller, I'd like to flush the content of that drive's cache, that you can be absolutely sure it's actually being done. In a very similar instance, there's an anecdote that uh, came up, I think, last week in RZFS on Reddit, where a user had a, about 240 checksum errors simultaneously show up on every single drive at once. And, you know, when we asked some questions, we discovered pretty rapidly that they had a Dell Perk, I believe, uh, RAID controller that was not flashed into IT mode firmware. And so they could not pass through the disks individually from the controller. They had to create a single disk RAID 0 array for each individual disk and then pass that RAID 0 volume down to ZFS. So ZFS does still get individual disks, but with the RAID controller part in the middle of it and not a simple host bus adapter, just like what Alan was talking about, it doesn't honor all the flush requests to make things seem faster. And so when that person had a power outage, they got a whole bunch of checksum errors to go along with it, and they had to restore some data from backup. Yeah, and the other problem with that approach is some of these tools, like I think the Dell one's actually okay for it, but a lot of them you end up with, oh, you need to boot into the RAID BIOS to configure a new disk. So when you replace a dead disk with a new one, you have to go into some EFI utility or something to actually make it a new RAID 0 so you can show up so you can actually have ZFS then do a resilver. The whole point of RAID is supposed to be protecting your uptime. And if you have to reboot to recreate a new array to add that extra disk... Then what is this, butter? Exactly. <laughs> so you definitely want to get a, a real HBA. And it's almost always cheaper than a RAID controller anyway. And it will do a lot better for you. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trustradius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A Create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Okay, Sean asks a very quick one. Postgres or MariaDB? Well, that depends on who you're asking and why and in what perspective. So if you're a DBA type, like a database administrator, and you have the opportunity right now as you're creating a new database-backed application to choose your whole stack, then the answer is almost certainly going to be Postgres. Because uh, Postgres has a lot of integrity and reliability features that MySQL or MariaDB, are, they're still kind of catching up. The old trope about this is that MySQL started out wanting to be as fast as possible, and then they bolted on correctness later. PostgreSQL started out wanting to prioritize correctness and, you know, bolted on performance improvements later. But the thing is, if you're not a developer 
who is choosing a database stack from scratch for brand new code, you almost certainly don't get to choose between Postgres and MariaDB or MySQL. You have to use whatever the application depends on. So if that's Postgres, you're going to use Postgres. If it's Maria, you're going to use Maria. The only confusion there is that although you don't get to choose between Postgres and Maria, you got to do whatever your application demands. MariaDB and MySQL, they really are interchangeable from like a sysadmin's perspective. If there is an application that requires Maria but has problems with MySQL or vice versa, I haven't seen it or heard of it yet. You know, we talked uh, with Joe earlier and he mentioned, you know, for WordPress, uh, I don't think there is support for Postgres. It's always going to be MySQL. You know, a lot of applications only support one or the other. There's a couple that support both, but you have to look at the the common denominator between the set of applications that you want to run. When I had the choice, I've usually fallen more on the MariaDB side, but that mostly has to do with my existing experience was with MySQL and tuning the performance of it and dealing with multi-master replication and so on. But as I've learned more and more about Postgres, and mentored a, a Postgres developer to get a FreeBSD commitment to improve Postgres on FreeBSD, specifically on ZFS, I've really come to enjoy some of the interesting things that the Postgres people are doing. Yeah, one other argument, obviously it's an edge case, unless you happen to be on that edge, in which case it's your case. If you are looking to develop a database-backed application that is specifically for you know GIS or anything geographical, post-GIS is a thing. So Geographical object storage in Postgres is uh, very well supported, whereas in MySQL, if you're going to do it, you got to kind of figure out a way to shoehorn it in somehow. It's not really a supported thing. So if you're doing GIS stuff, you want Postgres end of story. Yeah, I remember when I built an application that had a, a geo component back in, must have been 2008 or something, uh, we had to put the GIS part in MongoDB because Doing it in MySQL just didn't make sense. Then I had to deal with MongoDB. Yeah. Then you've got your time-sensitive ones like Influx. It really depends on the application, doesn't it? Like it's this question sort of almost doesn't really make sense. Like you have to pick the right tool for the right job, and without knowing what that job is, it's impossible to give advice. Really. Well, the advice is if you have the choice, Postgres is better. But yeah, and but like you're imagining, time series databases are quite a bit different because it's all about. I want to keep certain information at a whole bunch of series of points in time, which is different than rows in a database. And there's a bunch of different, entirely different database engines for that because you can shoehorn that into an SQL database, but at some point when you get to a high volume of data, it doesn't actually work as well as a proper time series database. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington. I'm on Twitter at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.